so much. As we get into our Bible text today, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles if you haven't. Go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we are today, and we are in the midst of a series called The Real Christmas. And we are trying to attempt to do what these kids did. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to go down the aisle, just wave at them, and they can give you one today. We've given away more than 600 Bibles since our church started. We'd love for people to have one if they want one. So just wave at them. They'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, put, this, put your name in this one. It's yours. You can keep it. If you do have a Bible and just forgot it today but want to follow along in Luke chapter 2, use this one. Just set it on the table when you leave, and we'll give it to somebody else next week. But we have been trying to trace back the real Christmas since the Sunday after Thanksgiving at Journey Church International. And there's a lot of Christmas hoopla from Christmas plays to Christmas caroling. And whether it's 1944 or the 50s or the 70s or the 90s, we want to go all the way back to Bethlehem and see what it was like the very first Christmas, what we call the real Christmas. What was the real Christmas like? And today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2 going back to Bethlehem to learn some spiritual application from Mary and Joseph's journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And here's what Luke writes in Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a Roman census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. Now, as I studied this text, and really this fall began to lay out the Christmas story, I asked God to show me this year some things in the Christmas story that I had never seen. And I asked God to kind of speak to my heart from the Christmas story in a way that I had never understood it because I love Christmas, and I've told you this all month long, I love Christmas lights, I love Christmas cookies, I love Christmas songs for a little while, I love Christmas Day, uh, I love giving gifts and getting, I just, I love, I love Christmas movies, I love Clark Griswold, I love Buddy the Elf, I mean, I just, I get into this time of the year. But this year I said, God, teach me something I haven't seen before, really impact my heart not just my life with Christmas. And God began to show me things I had never seen before. And in the journey to Bethlehem, I, I saw some things spiritually that hit me in a way that I've never been hit. Now, before you understand what I'm going to show you, you need a little bit of background on the text. Luke, who wrote this book, was a historian. He was not a disciple of Jesus. Four men wrote books about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were disciples. They lived with Jesus every day for three years. Mark, we know, knew Jesus and hung out with him, and scholars believe that the apostle Peter told Mark his version of the story, Mark wrote it down. But Luke didn't know Jesus. Luke had probably never met Jesus. Luke was a historian. Luke was not Jewish. He was Gentile. And he talked to people to figure out the facts of, basically, of what was going on so that he could write the story. That's why when Luke tells us a story, he dates it with history. Luke's the one who tells us that this happened in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus was actually the first Roman emperor as the Roman Empire began to spread over a, a period of about 350 years. Caesar Augustus was the first one who finally totally conquered the great Greek Empire and began to establish Rome as the dominant power of the world. But 
Luke didn't just tell us who was emperor in Rome. He told us that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, which would have been the region or the country or the state that Judea was ruled where Bethlehem was. It would be like Luke trying to nail down something that happened in Lee Summit, Missouri in 2013. He would have said in the time when Barack Obama was president, when Jay Nixon was governor of Missouri, he's trying to nail down a, a very specific set of time when both of these guys we're ruling so that we can know when these things happen. And what he wants us to know is that a census was being taken in the midst of this. Now, we know from history that the Romans had a census every 14 years. And what's really cool about this is we can read in the Bible what Luke says, and a lot of people say, well, how do you know that the Bible's true? They actually have documents in the Egyptian museum starting at AD 40, going for more than 250 years of every time the Romans issued a census, they have those documents written in a library that you can go see. One of them that you can go see uh, is from Gaius Vibius Maximus, prefect of Egypt or the governor of Egypt, Egypt orders. Seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census, it's necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside their districts to return to their own homes that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments. So Joseph probably got a note like this sent to his mailbox or put in his door or posted in the town square where they would read things that Rome had going on. And the Romans took a census for two reasons and two reasons only. And you need to know this in order to understand the spiritual application of this. One reason the Romans took a census was for taxation. They needed to know how many people they had, how many people they could tax, how much money they were supposed to be bringing in in tax, and they kept ledgers. So every 14 years when you went, they not only made sure you were still kicking and alive, but they, ma they made sure you were paid up for the last 14 years. And then they took a census so they would know who to compelled to be in the military service. And all over the Roman Empire, men from 18 to 20 were compelled to fight on behalf of Rome, not just those who lived in Italy, but all over the Mediterranean world, a census was taken so that they could force men, compel men to go into military service on behalf of Rome. So this census was not taken for the good of the people. It was taken for the good of the country, but it was taken for the good of an oppressive country. When you see the backdrop of why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, this had to be one of the most miserable journeys that they had ever taken. Imagine, many of you are like me. You weren't born and raised in Jackson County, Missouri. I was born in a, in a little town called Bainbridge, Ohio, that had 2,000 people in at one stoplight in southern Ohio. And if every 14 years I had to go back to Bainbridge to pay extra taxes or to be taken from my family to go into the military service, this would not be a time of life that I look forward to every 14th year to go back. But this is what Joseph and Mary were doing. And they weren't just doing it at a normal time. They were doing it while they were engaged, while they were getting ready to get married, while they were get, getting ready to have a baby. The worst time possible, they have to take this journey to Bethlehem. And as I studied the Christmas story this year, not just to know it, not just to tell it, but to learn from it, God began to reveal some things to me about this journey to Bethlehem and what I believe God wants us to see from the life and the heart of Joseph and Mary that we can apply to our own life today. The first thing that I learned as I really began to study this story is the need for you and I to embrace our place. I saw for you and I the need to embrace our place in life. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. Now, we know from a map, because these towns still exist, that the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was 80 miles. With a pregnant wife on foot, it could have taken a week to get there, two weeks in the town to kind of get everything settled, a week to get home. This probably took a month to six weeks just to sort all of this out. And I want to be honest with you, this had to be one of the most annoying, um, poorly placed six weeks journeys that anyone has ever taken. And if you were to ask me, I don't know how it would have been possible for Joseph and Mary not to have a bad attitude on their journey to Bethlehem. Because we look at what they were being asked to do, and we even look at the overall story of Jesus, and it would have been very easy to complain all the way there, to complain while they were there, and then to complain all the way home, and and for them to reject what was going on in Bethlehem rather than embracing Bethlehem as the place that, for some reason at that point in time, God had placed them. Now, none of you in here are living in an oppressive Roman regime. But I know this, there are some of you in here who the person you work for is not a a great guy or a great gal. There are some of you in here who are managed by somebody at work who doesn't treat you well, doesn't respect your family. Some of you in here are married to a spouse that's difficult to live with, or maybe you've had a marriage in because you were married to someone who was oppressive to you. You have kids that don't treat you well, or maybe your, your parents and uh, you don't treat your kids so well. But w- we see every now and then we find ourselves in a place we'd rather not be in. We find ourselves in a place that we didn't plan to be. We find ourselves in a place we don't plan to stay. And instead of embracing that place and saying, okay, God, what do you have for me here today? We just say, God, I can't wait to get out of this place. And what we find out when we look at Mary and Joseph and we see this journey to Bethlehem is we study the story of Jesus like we've been doing for a month. The story of Jesus didn't start in Bethlehem. It started in Nazareth. The story of Jesus doesn't end in Bethlehem, but on the way to and from Nazareth and the cross, the story of Jesus passed through Bethlehem and it impacted it significantly on the way through. Jesus' story didn't begin in Bethlehem, it didn't end in Bethlehem, but for the little bit of time it was in Bethlehem, the story of Jesus impacted Bethlehem deeply. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Regardless of where you are in your life, are you having a positive impact on your world? Regardless of whether or not you want to be where you are, live where you live, work where you live, be unemployed like you're unemployed, have your marriage in the state that it's in, have your finances in the state where, where they're in, Are you impacting your world right now where you are? Because I believe that my generation is growing up with a discontent over life that my mom and dad's generation didn't have and my grandparents' generation didn't have. You see, my grandma and grandpa grew up in a world where if when you were in your mid-20s, you got a job, and if you just worked hard every day from 7 to 4 or 8 to 5 or 8 to 6, if you just did that every day and you knew that you could do that every day for 30 years, you could come home at night and you could be with your family. On Saturday, you could watch your kids go play sports or you could fish or you could hunt. On Sunday, you could get up and take your kids to church and enjoy the afternoon together. On Memorial Day and Fourth of July and Labor Day, you could cook out with the family or you could go to a lake. And if you would just say, this is my life and I'm going to enjoy it, and you could just get to 55 or 60, you could retire and have the life that you had always dreamed of. My grandparents grew up that way. My mom and dad grew up that way. But I look at my generation and I I feel like I live in a generation who's so discontent with now, all they can think about is what's next. 
And they don't have evenings with their families because they're trying to get ahead. And they don't take their weekends to watch their kids play sports or dance or hang out with them because they're trying to get ahead. And they really can't even give their Sundays to God or family because if they can just do a little more for a little while, then maybe they'll finally have what's next. And I find myself often, I had someone challenge me one time and they said, Christian, most young leaders are, they, they live discontent in the present because they're so looking forward to the future and they miss everything in life. And I thought, Lord, don't let me be so discontent with now because I'm always looking for next that I miss the greatest parts of my life. You know, this, this week I, I began to pray about setting goals for next year. And one of the prayer goals that I felt like God lead me to set for next year is just that I would enjoy life more. You know, I, I exist in way more stress and discouragement and kind of heavy thinking that I need to. And it kind of hit me this week as I was driving down the road worried about something. I thought, you know what, Lord? I'm sick of having regret over the past, anxiety about the present, and worry for the future. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sick of always regretting something I did, being anxious about something that I'm in, or worrying about something that I'm going to do. God, I feel like my life is flying before my eyes, and I'm not even enjoying it, and I'm missing the very best part of my life. I'm in my mid-30s. My kids are awesome. My wife is awesome. And, and I sit at baseball games and texts, and I work on the weekends, and I take evenings to do this, and I think, Lord, if I could just slow down and just embrace where I am and enjoy it, I think my life would be better. I meet people in our church who have greater jobs than their parents had at their age. They live in bigger houses than their parents lived at their age. They drive nicer cars than their mom and dad or their grandma and grandpa ever drove. And all they can think about is what's next, not what's now. And we see our grandparents and our parents looking back at us thinking, man, you just need to slow down and enjoy your life a little bit. And I see Mary and Joseph put in a place they don't want to be by people that they, they don't really want to be put in a place by in a very difficult situation and instead of rejecting Bethlehem let's hurry up and get in and get out they take their time and they allow their life to have impact right where they are see the difference between our grandparents and many of us is we're so busy looking forward to next we're missing the now and I read this story of Bethlehem and I feel like God says Christian embrace your place Last week, we saw 32 people at our church make decisions for Jesus. 17 of them actually came down and talked with a prayer counselor and prayed with some of them. And it was just totally awesome. But as I met people, we said, who were the people that came? And I thought, the impact of last week was in the inventory of our church. Let me say that again. The impact of last week was in the inventory of our church. You say, what, Christian, what do you mean by that? I talked to people and they said, hey, Christian, this is my neighbor. And I invited him and they came and decided for Jesus. Hey, Christian, I work with this person and I invited him and they came and decided for Jesus. Hey, Christian, this person coaches my kid's sports team and I invited him and they came. Hey, Christian, this is my mom or dad or sister or brother. Basically, they said, this is who's in my life right now. So I invited them. And I may not live where I want to live or work where I want to work. Things may not be going the way that I want them to go. But right now, God has put people around me, specific people for a specific time, for a specific place. And if you will embrace your place, you can have impact now, right now. One of the most challenging verses in Scripture to me is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. If we were to back up a little bit, we would hear Paul tell Timothy, godliness is good. Yes, it's good to be godly. But you know what? Godliness with contentment is even better. Those of you who love Jesus so much, but you also love what's next so much, you're, joy, you're avoiding your family, you're not parenting well, 
Jesus would say to you, godliness with contentment is better than just godliness. For though we, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just embrace your place. Say, Christian, I don't want to stay here forever. Guess what? Joseph and Mary didn't want to stay in Bethlehem forever. They didn't want to get, go there in the first place. But they went there, and because they lived in the moment, they had impact for Jesus in Bethlehem. Secondly, as I read about this journey to Bethlehem, I, I realize that you and I live in a world and have always lived in a world where we have to make room for Jesus in a world where he doesn't really fit. You and I have to figure out how to make room for Jesus in a world where Jesus doesn't really fit. You know, I, I, have, I have grown tired, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and, I, so I'm, and I, I'm not trying to personally convict anyone in this room, but I have grown tired of people who are sick of hearing people say happy holidays rather than Merry Christmas. And I've grown tired of watching people disrespect their waiters or their waitresses or their checkout clerk at the grocery store or at the mall when they say happy holidays and you shoot back Merry Christmas. I've grown tired of that. Because the truth is we live in a world that when Jesus came into it, they were saying happy holidays, not Merry Christmas. It's like, we don't have room for you here. And Jesus like, that's all right, I'm going to make room anyway. And when we look at Scripture, Jesus doesn't say to make Lord the Lord of Target or of Chipotle or a price chopper, Jesus says, make Lord the Lord of your heart. All you can make Jesus Lord of is, is your heart. And I feel like sometimes we, we want to we wanna make Jesus the Lord of everything but us. And I, I, don't, I don't know that that's right. In Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're told pretty simply, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for a baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger, because there wasn't any room available for them. There wasn't any room. 30 years later, Jesus in Luke chapter 9 was talking with someone who he said, come and be my, be my disciple. And the disciple said, well, where are we going? And Jesus said in Luke 9, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Listen, Jesus didn't fit in when he was here. And following Jesus won't fit in now that we are here. You know, one of the things that we're trying to do as a church, as you saw with our children today, is we believe that it's the church's responsibility and the parents' responsibility to help our children understand who Jesus is and how God loves them and what his plan for, his life, for their life is through Jesus. But what we've come to realize at our church is just coming to church probably isn't enough. We don't have enough time to fit Jesus well into the lives of kids at church. Our kids' ministry team went to a conference, and they were shown at this conference kind of two jars of Skittles. One of them has 40 in it, and one has 3,000 in it. And they said, this is the average amount of time a year a 3 through a 12-year-old will spend in church, about 40 hours. The average pretty committed family to church comes three times a month. The average child ages 3 to 12 will spend about 40 hours a year in church. But the average three through 12 year old will spend 3,000 hours at home. So as a church, if mom and dad don't plan to make time to fit Jesus into the life of their child, they're not gonna have much of it poured in because this is, this is the time the world gives it. And those of you who grew up in a church like me going Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, even that would only be 120 hours if we just tripled it. We have to help parents understand how to make time for Jesus in the lives of their kids. So we have decided as a church this year to implement in January a brand new children's curriculum that focuses way more 
on helping parents minister to their kids even than it does to ministering kids. Those of you who have a smartphone, you have an iPhone or an Android, those of you who have a tablet, those of you who have a laptop, the the new children's ministry curriculum that we're using has an app called the Parent Q. You need to write that down. Parent Q is C-U-E. Where literally everything your kids learn on Sunday morning in kids' church is available on your phone or your tablet or your computer. I don't know if you're like me, but most times we ride more than 60 seconds down the road, the kids will ask me for my phone or the iPad, or they'll bring their own little thing to play because kids can't look out the window and just ride anymore. they got, they got to be playing on something. And, and we have the ability now, because we're trying to figure out how to make room for Jesus, to on your kids' iPods, on your kids' iPhones, uh, on your kids' Kindles, on your iPhone, on your tablet. You have the ability to carry our entire children's ministry curriculum for a year with you. And when you're on the way to that soccer game, that baseball game, that football game, that basketball tournament, that, that lacrosse match that your kids are going to have to miss church for, you can literally hand them your phone and say, hey, watch the message from Sunday, and it's right on there. And then those of you who want to spend extra time on that app, they have a thing called bedtime, they have a thing called mealtime, they have a thing called playtime, they have a thing called bath time for your preschool parents, and they'll say, while you're doing these three things during the week, read this verse, ask these questions, talk about this story. Because if parents don't make room every day for Jesus in their kid's life, the, room, the world is not going to stop to make room for Jesus. It never has. And it never will. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verses 15 and 16, praying for people who would follow him. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Paul went a step further in Philippians 3.20, and he said, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, listen, the only place that truly recognizes me 24-7 is going to be eternity. And that's what your heart needs to be prepared for. But if you don't make room for me, your boss isn't going to, your job isn't going to, your DVR is not going to, your kids' sports schedules are not going to, your finances probably are not going to. If you don't make room for God, there probably won't be any room for him left in the margin of your lives. And when I think about what 1 Peter 3.15 says, In the New English translation, it says, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. I thought, man, that has to be the greatest challenge for us. All we can do personally is set apart time in our lives for Jesus. We can't make anyone do anything else. We can't force someone to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. We can't make people take down the billboards that are negative about Jesus. We should really anticipate that, not be surprised by that. It's kind of how the world is going. And it really shouldn't bother us that much in our spirit because we don't belong here. The Bible says our home is in heaven and we're not going to really fit in here. The closer you get to Jesus, the less you'll fit in among people who don't love Jesus. But that's okay because we were meant for another place. I I ran across a situation this week that that highlighted this to me in a way that, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I mean, it continues to shock me spiritually. Uh, this week on Thursday, I, um, I got a call from a man who goes to our church who started telling me about a family that he was ministering to. And he said, Christian, we're ministering to a family. I have a girl. He's a basketball coach. So I have a girl who I've coached in club basketball the last six years. And he said her older sister uh, on uh, Monday morning left her house in Kansas City. She was driving back to school at Benedictine to take her last two finals. She hit a patch of ice, crossed over the median, and she hit a semi head on, doing 70 miles an hour, and it killed her instantly. 
And he said, we're trying to minister to this family. And he started telling me about the situation. And I said, hang on. Is that, I said, is that the girl that I saw in the paper? And, I, and he said, yeah, her name's Becca Luke. And I said, Ed, I saw her um, this week. I actually saw it flash across. And I didn't read much about it. But I said, what happened? He said, she came home from the weekend, star basketball player at St. Teresa's Academy last year, was in the club that we coached. I coached her several times. And he said, she was supposed to go back to school on Sunday night, but the weather was bad, so her parents said, why don't you wait till tomorrow morning? And got up early to leave for school, and it was still kind of icy, so they said, why don't you wait till the sun comes out and the salt trucks get out? So about 10 a.m., she left, and on 4.35, heading back up to North Kansas City, she hit a spot of ice across center line, and she was, she was killed instantly. He said they told the family on Monday afternoon, and he said, uh, Monday night, he said, Don, who's her dad, who he knows very well, he said he was laying in bed and he couldn't sleep. And he got out of his bed and he sat down on the floor and he grabbed his iPhone that was laying next to his bed. And he just started typing out the conversation that was going on in his heart and in his head as he was just wrestling through what had happened and how, how he was going to deal with it. He just started writing this kind of story slash letter slash narrative to God. And he said, I'd like to send it to you because it, it is amazing to see this man's spiritual perspective. I said, I'd love to see it. He sent it to me, and I read it, and immediately emailed him back. And I said, can I share this with our church? Because I think, I think this is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say embrace now and realize that eternity is it, but embrace now. And he asked the dad, and the dad said, of course he can. So as that dad laid in his bed, less than 12 hours after finding out his 18-year-old daughter, his third of seven children had died, he grabbed his phone and he began to type out this letter, this conversation that he was having with God. Young man, it's God, and I need to ask you a question. I want to give you a gift. This will be a small gift, actually a very small gift. She'll be about eight pounds when you first see her and your heart will melt. She will need you and you will need her. As she grows, you'll learn to see her beauty even more. She'll teach you about love and understanding. She'll guide you as you learn about patience. She'll be beautiful, my young man, just beautiful. You'll learn about compassion, and she'll give you light on your darkest days. You'll teach her how to walk. She'll teach you how to catch her when she falls. And I don't just mean as a child. She'll, she'll challenge you. She'll test you. She'll allow you to experience events that a selfish man could not have. That's why I'd like to choose you. She'll teach you about the value of abundance what it really means to love unconditionally. You'll be filled with humility as you'll have no way of knowing why you'd be so blessed to receive this gift because you're undeserving. And this gift is special. He said, I replied, I want this gift, God. I want to learn how to love more. I want to learn how to be a better father, Lord. I want to learn how to be a better husband. God, I want this gift because I want to learn how to be a better man. What do I need to do? How can I be so deserving to accept your wonder? It's simple, my son, God answered. I'll come back to you in 18 years. Listen to me, my child, because this is important. When I come back in 18 years, I'm going to take her back. You see, I need her too. So my question, young man, knowing all this, do you still want her? Yes, God, I want her. We want her. I want to learn how to love more. I want to laugh. I want to watch small people grow and amaze me with their wisdom. I want to be taught by my children, God. And I promise to teach back. I want this girl, God. I want her. But I have one question for you, God. Yes, my son. 
when you come back to get her, will you please grace me and my family with your love and caring hands? Because we'll hurt, God. We're going to hurt. And we're going to need your help. My son, I'll be there. You know, my daughter was up here singing today. She's 10. And I think about my perspective 12 hours after finding that Casey had been taken from me. And I don't know that it's that. I wish it would be. I, I wish that was me and that I was that strong spiritually. But I think I'd have a lot of regret over lost evenings and weekends. I think I'd have a lot of regret that I wasted a lot of now worrying about what's next. I think I'd struggle thinking that Casey was really born to be with God instead of to be with me. And that God was just taking her home and she was meant to help me love him more. But I see what this dad wrote. And I see who Joseph and Mary are. And I think that's it. That's the thought. Don't miss today. Don't miss tomorrow. Don't miss this Christmas season because you're so busy or you're so tired or you're so stressed or you're just worn out. Don't miss life because you're so focused on future life. And don't think that this is all that there is. This Christmas season, make room for God. If you don't, no one will. But this Christmas season, my challenge for you is make room for God because he created you to one day be with you forever. And your purpose in life is, when it gets right down to it, is to get to know him and to live to love him and to live to enjoy what he's given you and to live to be content and, and godly and to one day go be with him. That's what the Bible says. That's what Mary and Joseph got. That's what Don Luke understood. And that's what I have been challenged with this Christmas that I hope some of you have picked up on as well.